you know, everything that you want in life is on the other side of fear. It's like, you know, what the wave is coming in. You, do, do you run or do you duck dive into it? Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, a celebration of the people, companies, and ideas that stand out. And we are sponsored by our friends at Oracle NetSuite. To get a one-hour growth review with an expert in your industry, go to netsuite.com different. That's right. For listeners of this podcast, NetSuite is offering one hour with an expert who can help you unpack the opportunities for growth in your business at netsuite.com different. On this episode, we hang out with my good buddy, none other than the growth master, category guru to the one, uh, Fortune 100, and author of one of my absolute favorite books, Super Consumers, the incomparable Eddie Yoon. And um, Eddie, being the kind gentleman that he is, invited me to help him co-author uh, an article for um, the Harvard Business Review. And it seems like it's caused a lot of discussion. And so we thought we could unpack it. So today we have a conversation on why you should quit your corporate job and go solo. <laughs> we thought it'd be fun to get into this uh, because there's been such a big reaction since the HBR article come out, uh, came out. There have been some questions and concerns. And, you know, so we unpack some of the financial realities of leaving an executive job and going solo and share both of our experiences in that regard. We talk about what Eddie calls uh, the power of creating your own personal personal IPO as the ultimate way to monetize yourself. And on the personal side, the emotional business case for going solo. Uh, in this episode, you'll gain some very practical insights if you're thinking about making this move yourself. And even if you're not, if you're just thinking about how do I have a more legendary career, we really dig into the power of designing your career in the context of your life. Go to Lockhead.com to check out the show notes for this episode. You'll find the key takeaways and more on Eddie Yoon's background. Now, hey-ho, let's go. I think it really resonated in a way that even surprised me, so... Well, and the interesting thing to me is, and look, I may be dealing uh, with an incorrect assumption. You, you can educate me. But my assumption is that the Harvard Business Review is mostly read by Fortune 2000 type executives. Yeah, it, it's it's quite interesting. Uh, I don't know the specifics on it, but I, I have talked to uh, Sarah McConnell, one of their uh, executives, who was the former CMO there. And, and they clearly have super consumers is what she said, like yeah. this dynamic of a small set of people driving a ton of their revenue and engagement. And, but she did also say that the, the way in which people engage is kind of, um, you know, whatever the equivalent of a life event changes, but for your career, like you get promoted, you go to a new company, new yep. industry, and you have no idea what you're doing and you're scared that someone's going to find out. So you turn to HBR to kind of get smart quick <laughs> on it and stuff. And, it's you kind know, of the executive shrink in a, in a magazine, yeah, right? or I guess a yeah, website. Totally. Totally. And, and it, it does seem like people, um, to your point, you have kind of that fortune, you know, uh, ex executive that's reading it. Um, uh, but then it does seem like there's a lot of people early in their careers and midway through and trying to figure out what's next. They have a very diverse audience and yeah. sounds like you got a whole crew of solopreneurs out there on there too. So, well, and the interesting thing, you know, I sort of thought as a magazine that's primarily read by executives you know i wasn't sure how this piece would land but um there are over 20 comments on their website and i don't know more than that again um on social media a lot on linkedin and and so forth and so on you should see the instagram post that they did i think it has like over a thousand likes and just oh you know, i didn't see that yeah, yeah I, I, it's it's funny like i don't really have a good feel for their uh, timing of when they do what on like usually Twitter and LinkedIn, you know, and Facebook, but then like, um, that's where I was kind of surprised by is, you know, just the level of engagement that they've, uh, clearly shown there and stuff. And so, Oh shit, dude, it's, it's, <laughs> it's over 4,000 on LinkedIn <laughs> on, excuse me, on uh, Instagram. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Like, I mean, and I would have never guessed and the, and that. And the comments are just go on and on and on here. Yes. Yes. Wow. But and it, I, I'm just, you know, continually surprised by all of this of like, I, I just would have guessed that LinkedIn would have been a more logical place where the engagement would be high, but apparently 
Instagram. Well, it is high on LinkedIn, I, from what I yeah. can tell. Yeah, 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 yeah. No. There have been all kinds of random people uh, posting it and copying or uh, p- yeah. pinning. Uh, fucking A, get your... <laughs> tagging you and I. Um, So let's break this thing down. I mean, um, it it seems a very fascinating thing that many top, top performers, some of the highest earners, uh, in some cases, some folks who have stock plays in the company Mm -hmm. are are exiting to become solopreneurs or or what my buddy Chris Ducker calls youpreneurs. Yeah. And of course, you've done this and I've done this. Um. But what do you think's really going on here, Doctor Yoon? <laughs> I, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna give you an honorary doctorate from yeah. from from the from the University of Different. Doctor Yoon sounds for. good on you. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean it, it's well, you just said it. It's the uni- people like there's a probably a lot of square pegs are tired of being shoved into round holes, right? And that's kind of what I, the vibe that I get from it and. And that um, I've always kind of thought of as, as we were writing this, the image of, you know, the matrix, right? Like everyone's kind of a, you know, human battery for the hive, as it were. And then <laughs> once you get extracted out, which seems scary, obviously. And, um, but you realize there's a whole another world out there and what you thought was reality actually wasn't and stuff. And so, you know, it's, it, you just see this confluence everywhere of, you know, whether it's technology or, you know, some of it just, ha- like, you feel like we're on the early part of the S-curve with this, because, like, I don't know that I would have done this without your encouragement and your example to do that. And it's, when that happens, then you kind of got to go slowly one by one with it. But then between your book, Niche Down, and, you know, Dory Clark's work, and, you know, you see, when you start to see more and more people, and a lot of them are the ones that you really respect, and you're like, well, wait a minute, like, shouldn't I be following their example than what everybody else is doing? Yeah. Well, so let's go to, I think what a big concern for most people is, which is, okay, so uh, I'm in some job, I'm an executive. Oh, and by the way, I couldn't help myself. There was one of the, the negative comments on HBR.com, HBR's uh, uh, website, HBR.org. Somebody dinged us for saying, oh, well, you know, you compared what people make when they go out as solopreneurs (laughs) to the average U S income as opposed to the executive income. So just for the record, um, in the article, we say nearly 70% of solopreneurs report annual incomes of 100 to 250,000, which is nearly twofold uh, times higher the average US household. And to put a fine point on it, Glassdoor says the average US um, executive has a salary of 121. So a 121 and a half, if you want to be really specific. So, you know, the reality is, if you look at the data um, on the economic side, people earn, and you tell me if I'm reading this right, you know, you're, you know, math was over for me in grade 10, but, or actually grade three, if you want to be real. But um, the average solopreneur is doing as well, if not meaningfully better than she yeah. was doing as an executive. That's what the data seems to be telling us here. Eddie. Yeah. Regar- regardless of if it's average household income or Glassdoor's average executive income, like the numbers are just so overwhelmingly higher. It's kind of like, you know, like put it this way. If solopreneur was a indus- an industry and a company, like everyone would be flocking to this industry, right? Right. It's in the same way that people did it for Silicon Valley or investment banking or consulting. It was like, you know, if you're kind of agnostic as to what you want to do, you're going to chase where the money is. And the economic business case is clearly good, if not really, really good. So, so and and I, I love it. And, you know, listen, I'll be nothing but candid. I, I, this is your term, but I'm going to adopt it as my own. So maybe it could be our term. But <laughs> you call this a personal IPO, this concept yeah. of... You know, let's say for sake of argument, I'm making what Glassdoor says is the average 121 and a half as an executive. And but all my risk is in that one stock, so to speak. Um, And it's illiquid, so to speak. And instead, I spread my risk around, you know, let's say I earn that same 121 and a half. But I do it over four or five companies uh, as and as monthly recurring consulting gigs. Right. Yep. Yep. And you're calling that, we're calling that a personal IPO. Yes. 
And as somebody who has more recently gone through this than I have, you know, why, why is this notion of a personal IPO one that you find compelling? Well, you know, it's funny because it, some of it is just kind of listening to you and, and, you know, the advice that you've given me, but also like um, what I, what I recall was um, I forget if I talked about this guy with you, Steve Hughes, he's kind of the godfather of organic foods in Boulder, Colorado. And um, he, just a little bit of a sidetrack here, but like he we was have the, any sidetrack you want. <laughs> <laughs> so he's one of the best food and beverage guys I've ever met. And when he was way back when he was at ConAgra, the CEO of ConAgra had a heart attack, Mike, Har- Mike Harper, and was on a heart healthy diet. And he was like, this tastes like crap and we got to do something better. So uh, Steve Hughes was tapped to create healthy choice and he created from zero to over a billion dollars in five years, like, in, which is maybe wow. not so uncommon in, on, in Silicon Valley and technology, but in food and beverage, that's kind of crazy. So yeah, he did this and what, what <laughs> he tells a story about how like, you know, and this is like whatever, 30, 25 years ago, but for all the value that he created, I think he got like 200 grand and a bonus. Yeah. Uh, that was over and above, which, you know, for him at the time was like a lot of money, but then it was clearly like one of those like stories of entrepreneur creates something sells too early to somebody else who then maximizes the value elsewhere and stuff. Right. Yes. So, so Steve, um, you know, kind of files this away in his head and he, and he goes on to, he's the you know bigger and better jobs. He's a CMO of, of silk soy milk at white wave. And then, you know, became the CEO of Celestial Seasonings and the like. Wow. But then my, my favorite story is that after all of this, he's like, forget this. I want, I'm going to take myself public, which I'd never heard of anyone doing that before, but he launched a special purpose acquisition company. And I, I believe uh, whatever the S1 or equivalent filing was, you know, it's says Keith Hernandez, like, I'm Steve Hughes. Give me $100 million and I'm going to do something good with it. Right. Like, that was it. Right. And so <laughs> he, he went to, um, you know, he was able to do that. He raised a hundred million dollars. He bought smart balance. Um, and you know, and he, he's a fantastic marketer and then, but very quickly realized that with, this was early on in the millennial thing was that, uh, boomers were good with kind of manufactured science food, but millennials weren't. So he quickly pivoted to, other acquisitions like Udi's and evil and kind of, um, kind of natural stuff that became Boulder brands, which then they sold the pinnacle foods for over a billion dollars and stuff. And, and then now he's, uh, the CEO of sunrise strategic partners, which is a private, like a $200 million private equity fund in Boulder. And, you know, this is what I, he just lived in the dream. It's, it's this yeah. personal IPO. Every entrepreneur in organic food comes to him first because they don't go to the consumer private equity firms because, and, and, but they know that he has money and he's one of them. Right. Right. And, you know, he's got a great life. He's conscripting all these great kind of, um, you know, executives out of big food who don't want to become senior executives, but want to run their own thing. Um, I think his portfolio is, is, is uh, Sunrise One is going to return, you know, several X multiples of the committed capital with, I mean, he just, they're just killing it. Right. And he's creating the next generation of brands for millennial moms is what he's kind of talking about. But, you know, and you began to see like, he's one example out there. Cause I always thought of this whole personal IPO thing as more of a tech type driven thing. Like you think about the cult of personalities in business, a lot more of them I feel like are in technology, but to yeah. see him do that, in a non you know digitized fashion was kind of like ah this this may be something that the timing is right that more and more people can do this and i, and I just like that notion of like you know the multiple is higher when you go public as you know well right and you haven't yes. done that a couple of times and yes. um but the the the, the bridge to cross is what's your, your investor story who are your investors and why should they believe that you're worthy of this multiple and i think more people are figuring out that that market exists and why not me the other crazy thing having been sort of a solopreneur for you know big chunks of my career and been an executive and entrepreneur for other big chunks and now i'm you know back to solopreneuring and and i'm I'm done not doing that. Like that, that's all I'm doing now. <laughs> uh, we can talk about why if it matters, but um, you know, the, the interesting part is people are so afraid to break out because of that corporate mothership. 
and of course, a big part of it is 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 financial. The other one, of course, in the United States, which I think is nuts, but it's it's there for us, is healthcare, right? Yeah. yeah. But the interesting thing is, if you can if you can break through that, you and I, and we mention people, some by name, some not by name, in the article, but we know so many people mm-hmm. who have done exactly what we talked about in this article, which is they break out, they confront the fear of. Uh, will I be able to make enough? Many of the ones um, that we both know not only have made as much, but in many cases made more. And we know many, you know, I know some that have made more by a third or a half, or in some cases even doubled their income Mm -hmm. and uh, work a third to half less. And so there's this other weird thing going on, which is if, if you're an outsider to the company, you're immediately smarter than anybody inside the company. <laughs> yep. Now, I know that's not always true, but like it's kind of true a lot, isn't it? Yeah, it, is. Well, it is. Why is that? <laughs> you know, I mean, who, who knows? That Maybe that's the extra value that perspective gives you or the value that you get from being, you know, not part of the political, you know, internal politics that are going on there, right? And Or it, or it said differently, the value of when you just don't care anymore, right? Yeah. About the things that other people care about and your willingness to speak the truth. And so I, I think to your point, it's, you know, that perspective is so incredibly important because I, I, I have all these, you know, war stories of, you know, when I was advising really huge companies that, you know, senior executives, my clients, some of them I work with, they would say, you know, I, I totally agree with what, the strategy that you're recommending and I believe it's the right thing to do, but just so you know, don't be hurt if in the meeting I go where the wind blows because that's kind of what I got to do, right? To survive in, in, in corporate America or whatever. And so that, that freedom from that set of incentive and carrot and stick shackles, I, I just got to believe carries value with it. And I, I think to what you're saying is uh, one of the things that I, I, I wish we had included in the article, but I, I'd come across it afterwards was that ProPublica article that said that over half of uh, uh, folks in their 50s are going to be pushed out of their jobs earlier and under other circumstances than what they want to do. And I think that's the big part of it is if you kind of accept the fact that certainty and security is an illusion wherever you're at, then this personal IPO thing doesn't become that scary anymore. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think um, while we didn't have the room to talk about it in this post, you know, my buddy Kevin Maney's book Mm. uh, on Scaled, he talks about there's a whole, it might even be a whole chapter if I remember, it's been a while, but on becoming a personal enterprise. And, um, you know, the interesting thing to me is whether you're an employee or a solopreneur or not, this notion of a personal IPO, which is how am I over time going to monetize myself, mm-hmm. which is sort of the way I think about it, you know, what's the best way to monetize me? Uh, and then the second question is sort of, um, I need to take responsibility for myself. So I need to go back 200 years or so and say, you know, there was a cobbler and a mm-hmm. dressmaker and a farmer and a butcher and a et cetera, et cetera. And we were all solopreneurs, right? Most, most people were farmers, but, you know, and then all these other various things. And so today, I think if you want to have stability in your career, the best way to do that is to, whether you're technically an employee or not, is to yeah. think about yourself as somebody and look there's a lot of there's a lot of backlash against the quote-unquote gig economy mm-hmm. but you know forget dr- driving for lift for a second right. or or task rabbit or whatever but like striking out is going from being an executive to being some kind of solopreneur in more than likely a service type business right mm-hmm. that's generally what we've been talking about yeah. Yeah. um well of course there are failures and of course there's it's terrifying and you know there's some downsides to this of course the reality is we are seeing a tremendous amount of success and um, we're seeing at a time where I think you're right. I, I, I had gotten into this uh, Facebook debate with a group of folks about people in Silicon Valley at 50 aging out. Mm. And I was more ignorant about it than I thought. Um, and so do you see this thing happening? Is this, is, is this striking out on your own as a solopreneur? Is it a way to get in front of the I'm aging out? Yeah. Train, totally, so to speak. Totally. I, I, I think of it as, um, to your point, like um, 
the, the older you get, presumably the more senior you're getting. And uh, the more senior you get, the realization of um, it's a big old game of musical chairs. And every time you get promoted, there's fewer chairs next at the next level up and the next level up there, right? And so almost by definition- <laughs> Where are you gonna be when the music stops, Eddie? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and I, think that, I think this realization that the music is gonna stop for the vast majority of people, right? Because- And, and that's the political thing we're driving at, yes, right? Yes. Well, and, and, and I, think, I think the other thing that's kind of accelerated it has been, frankly, the kind of mercenary nature of 3G, right? Like for these Brazilians, you know, probably some of the most successful, you know, private equity folks out there, you know, at least within beer, but they take Burger King private and they put some young 30-year-old in charge of it and stuff. And what are they, it's not a guy that knows the restaurant business, not a guy that is a great, you know, marketer. It's a finance guy, right? And what does he do? Well, let me do some, you know, capital restructuring of spinning out franchises and own stores and this and that and deleveraging the company and blah, blah, blah. And I'm going to create EBITDA. And the reality is for a lot of these um, large, large companies where, you know, they're on the bad side of the category design. Like they, they don't have a category design and the category is maturing and they're ready to be disrupted. They're, what's the point of having somebody with 30 years of experience? I mean, that's the real kind of, um, you know, mercenary way of looking at it. But if you can't grow it, you may as well put somebody who can strip cost out. And that can be a 30-year-old guy or gal versus a 50-year-old person with it. Yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at it, I think. Uh, there's a lot of ageism as well. Yes. You know? You hear people sure. like Zuckerberg and you know, many in Silicon Valley saying all sorts of age, as Ali G might say, ageistic comments. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the interesting thing, and this is a, a tangent, but I had this aha, which is um, the position I think you want to be in north of 50, certainly north of 60, is one of um, you're either a senior executive who's running a big thing. So in, other, in your phrase, you're winning the game of musical chairs. Yeah. And or, because they're not, I think, necessarily mutually exclusive, but you've achieved uh, maybe Yoda-like status, mm. right? Yes. Oh, and this goes back to a different idea, and again, another one we couldn't get into in the article because of space, but this idea of position yourself or be positioned, mm -hmm. right? If I'm a mid-level product manager, um, whether I'm in a Fortune 1000 consumer company or a tech company or whatever, and I'm 45 and I'm not on a path to being the, you know, SVP or EVP of product management or marketing or whatever, I'm essentially, I'm a mid-level person at 45, yeah. um, then I have some thinking to do, don't I? Yes, yes. Well, I, and, and I, think, I think it's, one of the things that's been kind of interesting for me has been, um, you know, this notion of by, you know, there's all these whatever metrics about like you're, you, you should be this income or this net worth by this age or whatever. And I think a lot of people think about for their careers, I should be this title and at this prestige of company. And I, I actually think it's, uh, that's the wrong way to think about it. Like pedigree, um, I think has a half-life. And that's the thing that people don't really think about, especially as a Korean immigrant, my parents emphasize education. I'm like, your education is worth half as much the day after you graduate and then after that, and right? I mean, it's, it's like sort of like a new car, isn't like it? Like a new car. No, that's exactly right. And, and you're only as ever good as the last thing you ever did. And if you're bragging about your education when you're in your 40s and 50s, then what you're saying to me is that you clearly haven't accomplished anything in the last 20 years of worth, right? Yeah. And that really what, what, what you ought to be accumulating is beyond your title and the prestige of the company, more pedigree stuff is what are the testimonials and track record that you can look back on and what did you accomplish and who did you accomplish it with? And those people, when they move around, because the other way to hedge the game of musical chairs is to be of value to somebody who does win the musical chairs bid and then they pull you along somewhere else. Or as you said, the testimonial route is you're the Yoda because uh, it, it's, again, this, this is the thing that drives me nuts about LinkedIn is that it, it's just structured the wrong way. It should be structured around outcomes, right? We took this company from X to Y, we took it public, we grew it $100 million, we launched this new product, um, none of which 
can you can learn from your title, right? Right. Um, and that I want to know the people who, you know, as you said, be positioned or be positioned. The people who've routinely positioned a new product, a new brand, a new channel, a new category, that's the things that I want to know. Yes. And those people, you know, if you have those testimonials and track record, then my sense of it is that you'll be that much better prepared to win the game of musical chairs, or you can be Yoda to your point and either of which are escape yes. hatches for you. Yes. And actually I like what you're saying, which is if you're 35, the right strategy is I'm going to, by the time I'm 45, I want to A, win the game of musical chairs and B, become viewed as a Yoda. And that way I have all kinds of options. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's well, definitely. I, I think that, that, that realization, and that's why I always talk about the importance for me about journaling and just like, like to, I think it's so incumbent upon, you know, you and me. And part of the reason why I think this article resonates is to get this idea, kind of shake people by the shoulders to say, look at like, ain't no lifetime employment anywhere and no one's going to be looking out for you. And um, you are always going to be on one of these paths and you should be prepared for both. And beyond that is within the path of you're going to be, you know, senior executive ding dong, as you say, or, you know, personal IPO Yoda, you should learn which one you find joy in. Right. And not everybody can be both and not everybody gets energy out of both because the senior executive thing, a lot of that is kind of, you know, as you said about positioning, it, some of it is content and some of it is all the other stuff that comes with it. Right. You know, I, I talked to, and it's not cool at all for me to say who, but uh, one of the highest profile uh, Silicon Valley uh, entrepreneur CEOs of the last, you know, couple decades very if I said this person's name you would instantly uh, relate to the who, who this is and what he shared with me in the conversation in this case he's still the CEO of the company um, is the how mundane and boring it is mm -hmm. to be the CEO of this company and all the operational stuff and his lack of ability to be creative and, and mm. think the way he did in the beginning and, and so forth and so on. And, you know, and we had this conversation and I felt a little bit like, uh, you know, I sort of turned into Dr. Phil a little in the conversation, um, expressing his loneliness and expressing, you know, the fact that yes, he's been on the cover of all these magazines and celebrated and all this stuff, but the company's sort of, far beyond exceeding its initial goal, you know, incredible success. And, uh, and now is really facing a little bit of a, a crisis is too, too, way too strong a word. And this is a very uh, thoughtful, intelligent, mature uh, individual. And someone who is dealing with, let's just call it an existential topic, you know, which is sort of you know, why are we still here? We achieved our first mission. That was really cool. They're sort of, you know, it's sort of like, it reminded me a little bit of Microsoft. Mm. Remember when they had the BHAG of a, of a computer on every desktop? Yeah. And when that generally got achieved, they sort of were aimless for a long, long time, mm -hmm. for more than a decade. And it struck me that this founder CEO might be in a very similar situation, which is they massively overachieved their first goal in a relatively short period of time. Yeah. And now at least for him, the the boring is boringness a word uh, <laughs> sure <laughs> the boringness of day-to-day -day, you know management meetings and this and that is is not that interesting and he's sort of as a result faced with why are we really here why why do we really matter why does it need to be us to take what's the next thing you know etc and so you know one of the things that we talk about in this article and it seemed to be another thing that really resonated with people so something that people wrote over and over again is this emotional business case for striking out on your own as a solopreneur yeah but why do you think emotional business case resonates the way that it does eddie you know because i i think everyone's heart is somewhat deceitful like you think you know your feelings until you like one of the things my wife and i was kind of joke or phrase we say or, are you being sneaky angry like seems like you're angry at me but you might be angry about something else and are you self-aware enough to figure out what that is and so you know find me somebody who's completely in tune with your emotions and you know i'll be the first to be like how'd you get there right and so I, and I just think your story of this senior, this CEO is so interesting because one of the big kind of 
you know, warnings that I got from people before I went out to do the solopreneur thing is, hey, you're going to be lonely, right? And and I I'm like, I can't tell you how that's so not true. Like, I I have probably never been more, yeah, that the sense of camaraderie, but like the maybe with fewer people, but with the people that I like the most and I respect the most. And I've gotten rid of all the other people that drain me of energy and stuff in my life, in my work life, and that's been fabulous. And But like, I think the CEO situation is not uncommon, right? It's like, you know, the more senior you get, the more likely people won't tell you the truth, the more likely people who engage with you want something out of you or from you. And I could totally see that as an extraordinarily lonely place to be where you really have no real connection and no real authentic relationships. And I don't think people talk about it because that's kind of like, you know, well, why would you kind of, you know, pee in the well of what everybody's aspiring to? But the reality of, I think, the emotional business case is that you don't know it until you actually do it. And that I think the rewards and the boogie are bigger as a solopreneur for some people, and the boogeyman uh, is a lot smaller. And what people don't realize is, you know, it's that whole notion of you finally get the brass ring and you kind of lost your soul along the way or you, you didn't realize what it was going to cost you. Because the, yeah. these aren't really articles that have been written or books that have been told because so few people have really made it on either side of it. So, Well, I'll give you one on the sort of the um, emotional business case. It's a very simple one. Um with the very rare exception i don't wake up to an alarm clock yes that's point a that's just kind of an interesting one right there point b um you and i don't do commutes right huge and i, I the average american commutes for half an hour a day which is nothing if you take it to a bigger city i don't i don't have the data but like in the part of the world that you live in the part of the world that i yeah. live it ain't a half hour a day i mean there's easily a lot 2 of hours of my life back for me to do whatever I want. Right. Yeah. So that's uh, two times five is 10, right? Amazing. So that's yeah. 10 hours a week, right? When you t- when you peel that commute out, if, 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 if it's the case you're describing, 10 hours a week, you say, okay, well, what would you do if somebody handed you 10 hours a yeah. week? So just that alone. Now, of course, it's juxtaposed with the uncertainty of, hey, you know, maybe I only have three clients, and if I lose one or two, shit goes bad. The economy might go soft. Those things are all um, spooky. But the interesting thing is, of course, it's a fallacy to think that we have any corporate security anyway. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. I, I, when to your to your last point, it's you know it. I mean, some of the big uh, consulting firms, they're famous for their upper out strategies in terms of how they manage people. And the reality is life is upper out. And if it's not, then it's kind of up or decay at some level because you're just going to stagnate in some job. And, you know, again, it, it's that I think this was a thing about like, if you are not, even if you have no back to that testimony and track record, if you don't have it for the last 20 years, you can still do it right now and then resurrect and get on the right path with it, right? But this this notion of um, would I worry about clients as a solopreneur or as a senior partner anywhere else? For sure, I'd worry about that. And, right. And it's and it the, the thing that I think of it as, um, you know, fear being uh, the avoidance of fear is not an option. It just doesn't exist anywhere. Right. And I think the ability to live with and um, value fear in a way that keeps you sharp and helpful and I think replace fear with passion and purpose of like, you know what, if, if I don't have clients, then some of it is serendipity and circumstance, but some of it might be I'm not at my, my, my A game's not on. I haven't really thought of anything sharp enough or compelling enough to, to do that. And, you know, that's something I can control and I can do something yeah. about, and it's going to be good either way, you know? And, and I, I think that kind of, you know, everything that you want in life is on the other side of fear. It's like, you know, what the wave is coming and you, do, do you run or do you duck dive into it? And so like, I think that's the whole point of it. Like you realize like, you know, when we're in the water and the ocean, it's like, you know what, it's safer underneath all that turmoil and just dive underneath it. And then you'll come out on the other side. Okay. And I think that that's an important part of it. Funny thing on the commute bit is, you know, you, 
you live in Santa Cruz. I live in, in, in Chicago. And I, I, um, uh, I couldn't find one of my gloves. And I have these pair of gloves that I love. And I was like, I can't find this pair, you know, this other glove. I have the left one and I have the right one. And then I realized, um, oh, wait, I haven't needed my gloves. I'm like, why do I not need my gloves? It's been, it's freezing right now in Chicago. And it's like, <laughs> well, I only needed my gloves when I'm standing out in the cold waiting for the train to get to work. And I'm either indoors or in a car. And I'm just not standing outside in the cold anymore. Yeah. To your point about the commute. And this is the thing that would, I knew would drive me nuts about living in Chicago. And I stay here because my wife's family is here and I love her dearly. And even though my, we're, we're probably eight years away from moving back to Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> How many years, Eddie? <laughs> I think eight. <laughs> uh, as soon as my youngest gets off to college or something like that. But, um, but you know, it, it's these little things of like, I don't mind the cold when I'm indoors. You know, or in my yeah. my my car, and when the snow's very pretty from exactly. when you have a cup of coffee and you're watching it come exactly. down in your kitchen or wherever. <laughs> so I just feel like there's all these little Easter eggs that that emotional business case is just so understated and so poorly misunderstood that I think that's the reason why when you meet somebody who has done this successfully, you're like, you got to do this, and I it's yeah. hard to explain what it'll look like for you. But it's great. And, you know, every, everything, you know, confronting fear, got to do it. And, and, and it's going to be there no matter what. But you can, the, the reality of it is, you know, what, what I talked about, circumstance and serendipity, uh, the things that you can invest in and control. And what I realized, the stuff that's not there is the politics and the, everything else that's, you know, that can weigh heavily on you and your career and stuff at a larger company. And so I feel like I have more control over my life than if I was working somewhere else and stuff. So, Yeah. The other thing I love about what you've done, and you've shared this with me in the past, is, you know, your kids um, and the, the ages that they were when you went solo, you, you made a proactive decision in your, for yourself, in your life, with your wife, that you wanted to be around more through their teenage years. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but yeah. that's how I remember it. Is that, totally. Am I remembering this right? Totally. And, and like just today, my, my son is, um, my, he's a fifth grader. He, he's sick. So he's staying home from school. And, you know, my, my wife was, you know, she had a bunch of stuff that she's going to do and she's, she's home, but like, she knows that she can go do her business and she'll, I mean, he's not like on his deathbed or anything. So he's got a fever, but he's like, look, dad's talking to his buddy Christopher on a podcast. So right. unless you're, it's really bad, don't bother. Exactly. Right unless you're but, truly dying, you little shit. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, you know, it, I think, you know, just the little things like that make a huge difference. I think the fact that I'm home or I can pick them up when they come home that I cook for dinner and just, I, and I, cause I remember it's these little things like you can't really plan for, you know, hey, kiddo, let's have a heart to heart. And it's going to be a hallmark moment that we're going to remember forever. It just kind of happens. And the odds of it happening go up when you're just around and stuff. So I think that's been hugely uh, valuable. And then, uh, you know, one of the things I, I, I was surprised that, you know, uh, the HBR folks let, let us put it in there. But that, that story that my, my daughter Audrey wrote, which I'll send you a copy. We're, we're, we're probably a month or two away from publishing this children's book with it and stuff, the, the yellow so balloon one and stuff. But like, it was like a frightening wake up call when she wrote it. And I was like, Oh my goodness. I mean, she says again, not me, but who knows, right? Yeah. So. Where else is she going to get that example? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And actually I was just Googling as you were talking. I've never heard of this website before. Dailydodge.com says only 27% of Americans cook every day. Mm. And according to the USA Today, 90% of Americans don't like to cook. And yet with commuting and all of the hee-haw around you know, daily life and getting kids to school and back, cooking tends to be one of those things that go out the window. No. And I used to live in a fairly cooking-free life. And then I married an Italian. <laughs> and now I live in a very cooking... Um, <laughs> cooking rich life. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, look, I can't cook worth a shit. I can make eggs and, uh, you know, oatmeal and toast. That's about my repertoire. But yeah. um, man, oh man, when you live in a, in a world where people cook and they cook good food and they cook with good ingredients, oh my God, it's, it, it's a game changer. But it is interesting. It seems like that the pace of life and particularly when you take the, the commute out 
uh, or when you put the commute in, you get rid of you get rid of working out and going to the gym and training yeah, totally. that. And I think a lot of people get rid of eating properly. Well, and it, it's it's funny as you mention it because you know I, I've done a lot of work for food and beverage companies, and you said like you know I think that ninety percent stat comes from another HBR piece that I wrote about cooking becoming the new sewing because more of <laughs> that's the way it's headed. You know, it, it's to your point because that's just the way uh, I think the the category is going to evolve. Um, but for me personally, and, and it's kind of funny that I wrote that because I, I got a lot of hate mail from people who are big cooks and chefs of like, you know, don't say that because, you know, but I think for me to be able to cook for the family and cook for myself has been extraordinarily helpful for my own personal diet. I've been able to lose a little bit of weight, as you said, like work out more. And, you know, it, it's, it's stuff that like, when I look back at my career, like I bet if you were to chart kind of my, my medical records against time, it was just kind of a slowly gradual, you know, whatever the equivalent of global warming is expansion of Eddie and stuff, but like the ability to take control over that. Do you remember that line from, um, uh, airplane and Leon's getting larger (laughs) (laughs) and Eddie's getting larger. That's exactly what was happening. Uh, Well, look, it's easy. You know, you blow off your your training in the morning because you're busy. You got to commute. You got shit going on. Right. Yeah. You grab a fucking Cinnabon on the way to work and like, you know, you eat pizza or some breaded sandwich. And like, it just, I, listen, I've been there, man. Well, I, I think you have the convenience thing. And then, you know, I, I would, I would estimate that a good, you know, 20 to 25% of the food and beverage categories, emotional consumption, right? It's not wow. that I'm hungry, but it's, you know, I, I'm, I'm guilt eating or emotionally, whatever it is, right? And which goes to the root cause of this whole emotional business case of like when your life is probably somewhat in disorder emotionally when you have other people's agendas kind of running your life at some level. And like I, I think about like some of the big ideas that people are trying to tackle around healthcare and, you know, obviously, you know, huge cost to our government and, burden on society and you know huge risk for individuals is like it's hard for me to imagine how this country gets healthier um particularly as 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 obesity is probably you know uh, public enemy number one it's the you know the, the root of all health issues and the like and stuff um without a meaningful chunk of the population doing what we're doing and you know being able to take control of their lives in a way that eliminates commutes gives them autonomy so that they can cook for themselves and um, exercise better in, in a way that works for them. Because I think that's been the other bit of it has been not just that I'm exercising more and, and cooking more. It's, I think, the same notion of this personal IPO. Oh, I can tailor this the way that I want. Same kind of philosophy has come into other aspects of my life is I don't have to follow a particular workout routine or, or diet. It's going to what works. And I think that joy of experimentation is really one of the great fun things about this. So. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I I couldn't help but think, and of course, who knows what what the correlation is, but you may have seen recently, there's been some reports out that say, here's one from the New York Times, opioids, car uh, car crashes are falling. And they're talking about the odds of dying in America. And today, Americans are more likely to die of an opioid overdose than a car crash. Crazy. That's insane. And so, look, uh, I'm no doctor, God knows, but you got to believe part of the opioid crisis is people feel like they're in pain and they're taking things to null, yeah. you know, to to dull, excuse me, that pain. Yeah. Um, and But I just found it incredible that um, it says, this article says, uh, according to a report, uh, your, your odds of dying of opioid overdose in America is one in 96, mm. and the odds of dying in a vehicle crash is one in 103, which, yeah. by the way, I also found incredibly high, one in 103? Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. It is crazy. And, and, and it, it, it's funny how um, I remember doing some work in automotive way back when, and like, you know, people were surprised to hear that teenagers were very, like, really spiked high in wanting safety in cars, which surprised them. They thought they wanted it to go faster or look cooler or better sound systems. And I think for a lot, I don't, it probably still is now, but I think auto accidents was the number one cause of death for teenagers, to your point. Yeah. Right. And, and so, yeah, I, I think, I think this, what, what you're getting at is, you know, whether it's, I mean, 
I think what you're saying, Dr. Lockhead, because that also sounds good, is that, you know, for a lot of people, if you have kind of a regular job and you're working for a company, that commuting is dangerous to your health and, you know, not getting your emotional business case right is also dangerous to your health, too, if you fall prey to addiction or some other way of medicating yes. what you have going on. And, and, and I, I got to believe, too, like this this notion of like, um, you know, that oops, sorry, we can trust large companies to balance a profit motive with, you know, you know, whatever paying, um, you know, raising wages in a way that we can solve for the economic pace. I mean, it, it's just kind of like people got to this path. I think the more that we can evangelize that it's a legit option. I think the beauty of it is that I think you, as an individual, I feel more fulfilled and better about myself, you know, cause the economics work great, but also the emotional business case is really, outstanding too and i think if you can i think to your point you know whether the opioid crisis or just kind of depression in general i gotta believe that a large part of it is i'm scared to death about my finances because so few people have savings or um you know i'm either you know feel lonely in my career or i'm, I'm, I'm fearful or what have i done for you know that existential crisis as you mentioned beforehand i'm sure exists for a lot of people versus yeah. you can do something that is quote unquote not prestigious but if you you know you're your own boss and you've personally ipo'd that there's real pride that you could feel there too right and you don't have to be you know orthopedic surgeon whatever and stuff so yeah I'm also another factor um, that's interesting to me. I was just looking at it to get it right. So recently, my buddy Jordan Harbinger had on his podcast, uh, episode 126, a guy named Dr. Matthew Walker, who's a professor of neuroscience and psychology at Berkeley. And uh, so they were talking about sleep. And um, there's a whole bunch of shit about sleep I had no idea about. And uh, his Dr. Walker's point was, um, driving tired is more dangerous than driving drunk. Oh, yes. Because if you're drunk, at least what happens is your reaction times are less. If you're tired, there is no reaction because you're asleep when you hit the car or whatever in front of you, right? <laughs> That's a good way to so you it. don't react. And, and he gave some stats. I don't have them off the top of my head, but, you know, of the percentage of Americans that are not getting enough sleep. And it's, yeah. it's virtually, you know, the vast majority of adult Americans, right? So I think all that plays in. And I guess the meta point in all of this to me, Eddie, is um, what I believe is people should design their careers in the mm -hmm. context of their life. Yes. And I think what we're trying to share with people here is, look, if you come to a place for whatever reason, whether it's the political bullshit, whether it's the economic side, whether it's wanting to be closer to your kids, whether it, whatever it is, that you should view... Uh, career design and life design is the same thing because to your point our motivations are the same it's not there's not one eddie that wants to be with his kids and an, another eddie that wants to do well in his career right it's the same eddie trying to figure out how to make it all work in a, in a way that that truly works as opposed to that you know makes you nuts um and so i love this idea of taking a big step back and saying okay where am i in my career whether i'm 25 35 45 50, wherever where am i right and, and what's the right next best move for me? Am I winning this game of musical chairs called moving up the corporate ladder? Am I, am I on teams that I love? I, you know, because for huge parts of my career, talking to me about going solo, I would have said, hey, stick it in your ear, man. I'm too busy building yeah. this company, this category, being on this team, doing this stuff, flying all over. And it was very, very satisfying. Um, and for some people, they want to continue to do that. I know many people who just, they love that, right? And they're masters at that. Yeah. And then some of us get to a place where it's like, hey, you know what? Um, I want to do something different in my life, and therefore work needs to be a different thing. Yeah. And this notion that there's economic downside is real. However, there's a flip side, which is if you can pull off a personal IPO, you can actually make this better. Yeah. And then the other one is for all the distress and concern this, that this might cause, there's the joy and the bliss of uh, being able to reclaim and take control of your life and, and really uh, execute against this emotional business case. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's um, what I think when I hear you, what you were saying just there is in many respects, it's people settling, right? It's if no issue working for a company and working on a team, but 
it should be awesome and amazing. And if it's not that, then yes. you ought to be working on your personal IPO. And frankly, um, I would imagine, I mean, I, I know, I, 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 I got to believe you continually get pinged for jobs and coming back, you know, let's come out of this and that. And in the same way that a lot of the, you know, uh, companies uh, out there will they'll, they'll they'll go public then they go private they go public you know it's I can't see why that's not the reality of the top sure. performers is they just go back and forth and that frankly um, you should always be working on your personal IPO because that might be the best way to solve for the musical chairs bit right it's there's no greater like there's a guy um, by the name of Keith Levy who's um, he's a Mars executive uh, global president of uh, business development and one of the best things about him is that um, he was the CMO and head of sales at Anheuser-Busch and, you know, you know, uh, life was very good for him post acquisition. Let's put it that way. Yeah. But is that, you know, he, he just could say, I don't need this job. I do it because I like it. I do it because I want to do something legendary to use your words. And if you don't, if you disagree with me, I'm happy taking my marbles and going home. And yes. I think that ability to affect change that he has is so extraordinary. Um, I think in, in, in at some level that that hinge of that uh, the personal IPO is an evergreen thing that we're working on, that it's the best way to solve for the musical chairs, that you should plan on going back and forth over time Yes, um, is probably the right answer and stuff that, you know, we, we were, I remember you were lamenting about entrepreneurship going down amongst young people and millennials and stuff is that, you know, it, I think the more that people can be, they should teach this in high schools that entrepreneurship can be capital E and lowercase e, as you said. Yeah. Right? And that um, this is a fantastic option for you. And you got to think about that. And, you know, like, and I think at, at, there's kind of like addressing the narrative that I think we're doing now talking about it at the, at the conceptual and the high level there. And I think there's also the very practical level of, I love what you're talking about on the sleep side is that one of the best things in the last two years for me is I'm getting consistently seven, eight hours of sleep. And for 20 years I was at five, four, no, four, five, six and stuff. Yeah. And I just kind of lived with it and you can live with it there. But like, you know, we talked about um, your emotional health, uh, your physical health. Um, how much of that is just solved by getting a good night's sleep, right? I mean, just a sleeping. Lot of it. Yeah, a lot of it better. And I, I've just seen, you know, so many capital E entrepreneurs out there. There's a guy, uh, Peter Talley, who has a, a startup called Insomnisolve as a wearable device that has a clinical trial from Mass General where uses impulses like, you know, like those seasickness bands that you wear on your wrist. Right, right. <laughs> well, the, his mass general clinical says that, you know, you'll fall asleep faster 40% and stay asleep longer 40% because it creates a sensation of rocking and stuff. And like, wow. you know, like all, all these things that are being monetized around sleep, you know, it, you talk about like, actually we've covered off kind of the major you know, uh, category, uh, design opportunities for somebody out there, solve for traffic and commuting, right? <laughs> solve for emotional health in a way that's not just kind of this fragmented counseling industry that doesn't make any money and the like, and then solve for sleep. And you know, that those are worthy things to those solve big for things, yeah. big things as a team and this and that. And if not that solve for it in a little E fashion for yourself. And it, it's kind of like, you should, to, to settle for I'm SVP of whatever, not doing anything amazing, that's the worst case option. You should be doing something bodacious with a team that you're thrilled with and you would go to the mattresses for, or you should be doing this for yourself. Amen. Hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything you, uh, anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap, Dr. Yoon? <laughs> no, I, I can't, I can't wait to, hopefully uh, there'll be more opportunities to engage with all the people out there. I, I think there's so many great stories and I think so much more for us to learn about it. Um, so I, I'm just thrilled that we had a chance to talk about it. And Me too, Eddie. Conversation going. I can't believe the interest and conversation this piece is, um, has sparked up and, and I'm glad it shows that we're at a very interesting point. And, you know, the, I guess the one other thing I would say that, um, it may be as self-evident, but, you know, we talk about it a little bit at the end of Niche Down, how there's a niche NATO coming. Mm. Uh, and part of it, of course, is driven by technology, right? And just this technology that you and I are using right now, Zoom, you know, you can be in Chicago and I can be in Santa Cruz. And so technology is helping to remove lots of barriers where heretofore you couldn't be, you couldn't scale. And so if you're a micro niche consultant in, you know, if you're a, I don't know, an expert in 
funeral parlor design. <laughs> yeah. You know, may, maybe the category potential in, in, you know, Southwest Louisiana for that is not very big. And so you can't really strike out on your own, but of course, uh, the technology changes everything. So not only is everything I think we talked about today worthy of consideration, I think the power of technology to reach, uh, even if it's a very small potential uh, category potential yeah. of potential customers or clients, you know, we, we can pinpoint those folks in a way today that you never could before. You could be like my buddy, Joe Sanek, who's like, the you know, he's got the podcast, The Practice of the Practice, and he's yeah. like the guru to people in with small private whether it's mental health practices or, or, or massage therapy or physical therapy or like mm-hmm. that, you know, I, I don't know that you could have been him yeah, without exactly. the ability exactly. to scale into that niche with the technology. And so I think that blows open a whole other part of this that I think is very worthy of consideration as well. well and I think to your point about the technology, like that, that is, you know, as much of a layup from a investor business case perspective of, you know, any company that's going to be uh, innovating technology to enable this sole, you know, niche NATO, as you were describing it, right? Clear winners, right? Because th- you think about how much economic value is being created by simply just doing that personal IPO. You take what you made before and you, you know, increase it by 50% and everybody's happier. Right. Everybody's <laughs> happier with it, right? Like, you know, it's, it's to me, like what, what the thing that we should work on next is like, you know, what is the upside to the total GDP if this is truly unlocked, right? If, if right. a full third of the labor force goes solo um, and they make 50% more, but they create, you know, 500% more value for everybody that's there. I mean, that this could be very well, you know, forget Facebook and the like. It's This is kind of the next revolution of value creation, um, not only from an economic standpoint, but you think about the emotional well-being that so maybe the U.S. could finally climb the charts and knock off like Denmark or whatever, you know, Scandinavian countries, the happiest out there. Like stuff. But, well, and, you know, not possible. to get too uh, metaphysical about all of it, but there is an interesting correlation um, you know, my buddy, Mike Maples Jr., who I think is one of the smartest guys I know, he really believes strongly. And it's I see this correlation in a lot of places. Um, uh, Chris, F- former Navy SEAL and now um, president of McChrystal Group, Chris Fussell, explained this to me. And, and of course, General McChrystal himself did about how our military had to go from a command mm. and control model to a network based model. Yes. Essentially, I'm way oversimplifying, simplifying, but essentially that's what they that's what I learned from them. And Mike really believes, <coughs> excuse me, really believes that um, the future of business is not a corporation, as we understand it, that was essentially constructed around um, uh, the Industrial Revolution, that the future structure of corporations is, is as networks. Yes. And so if you connect the dots on those things, you come to this place and say, well, maybe the definition of work is... On one level, there's a hierarchy that has some command and control and sets direction and incentives and goals and, you know, blah, 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 and provides some resources and whatever. And yet, and then there are these very autonomous um, nodes in the network. By the way, you know, when we, ha- we had T.J. Welsh, who is a retired fire chief, who is one of the uh, architects of, of our procedures and policies in California for fighting wildfires, very similar kind of thing. You know, 5,000 firefighters show up in one day. You can't wait for them to all get trained. You can't wait for them all to be told what to, you know, they, they, they immediately move into action. And there's this, again, there's this centralized control, but highly decentralized network. So anyway, if you take it all the way up to that and you say, well, yeah. what that might mean is exactly what you just said becomes truer and truer because we all become um, nodes, if you will, in networks. And just like you and I, you and I collaborate on some percentage of things we do together, not a huge percentage, but a few things that we like to do together, you know, write and talk to some of these clients and some of that stuff. And then you go off and do all your other things with other people. And I do that too. And so we're, we're in our own network. We come together on things that make sense and we go apart and do our own thing. And, and, you know, it's very much like how Mike, I think envisions the future of a company very much how, Cal Fire fights fires, very much yeah. how the military now is dealing with military threats. So it's 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 sort of an interesting uh, network-based paradigm to work that may yeah. be emerging here. 
Well, I, I, I love that kind of network vision of the future. And I, I think the last thought that I have in my mind is, you know, in the same way that you rebranded your podcast, and we, we've talked about this is, you know, follow your different, right? To me, as I've been reflecting on it, it's your best shot at getting each individual's unique contribution to the economy, to society, and that on, on the belief that different is good, and the reason why it's good is that everybody has a unique makeup and you were created to contribute uniquely to the world in some way, shape, which will never get there until you embrace your different. Yeah. And when you can make a unique contribution to the world, that's when you find your joy. Because we, we've talked about this idea, right? And I think I've been thinking about what, what does the algebra of this actually look like? And I, I, that's my feeling of it is that um, in as much as, hey, great investment case to the future of the world is a set of networks and the like with it here. But you know, that, that emotional business case, which I think is the core that is really resonating with the people out there, is that, yeah, yeah, follow your different, maximize your chances for that unique contribution. And, you know, no amount of money and no amount of celebration can compensate for that feeling of I made a difference and it was uniquely me. And that's where I think that joy really emerges from. So. Amen. Hallelujah. All right, Eddie, that's an amazing place to, uh, to kick out of this one. Thank yeah. you, brother. Uh, thank you Absolutely. for collaborating on this awesome uh, HBR piece. And I'm so glad it's made the difference that it seems to be making. And um, I can't wait to talk to you again soon. Great. Thanks, man. Thanks, Eddie. Whew. The masterful Eddie Yoon. Uh, I'm so stoked I get to have him in my life and get to share him with you. Now, is it grow time in your business? And in particular, I wanna to talk to folks who are maybe in the manufacturing world because NetSuite's product management and manufacturing capabilities allow you to run your manufacturing ops like a boss. From sales orders to work order processing to routing or routing, depending on your religious beliefs, uh, scheduling, order fulfillment, uh, figuring out what your product costing is. NetSuite's manufacturing capability provides real-time visibility into every step of your production. That's As a matter of fact, NetSuite is considered the number one company in cloud ERP. ERP, of course, being enterprise resource planning with manufacturing sitting uh, as a critical component. NetSuite is the platform for how you uh, build products, get your products to market quickly, and cost-effectively deliver them anywhere in the world with an end-to-end -end manufacturing software solution designed for your entire business in the cloud. Yes, the cloud people. Um, so for listeners of this podcast, NetSuite has an awesome offer. Go to netsuite.com slash different, and there you can set up to have a free growth review with an expert in your industry, uh, manufacturing or otherwise for that matter. So go to netsuite.com slash different to set up your growth review today. Also want to let you know, uh, if you want to send us email, send it to blackhole at lockhead, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D.com. If you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, I'm at lockhead. And um, also go to lockhead.com. It's our brand new website. We put a ton of work into it. And if you subscribe to uh, this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Player FM or Stitcher or Spotify or Outcast or uh, many of the others, Podbeam, um, that's awesome. Thank you for doing that. And we don't know you exist when you subscribe because those platforms don't tell us you're there. So if you want us to know you exist, uh, subscribe on lockhead.com. And here's the thing I could tell you. A, we don't sell your name to nobody uh, ever. <laughs> B, we don't send out that many emails. <laughs> we haven't sent out an email in over a month. Um, so we only email you shit when we think there's something important to say. Uh, we are going to get our email program back on track. So if you haven't gotten an email from us, it's not personal. Uh, we're going to get back on a weekly schedule here uh, sometime soon. But suffice it to say, we are not going to be bombarding you with crapola <laughs> when you subscribe on lockhead.com. All right. We would like to thank the incredible Eddie Yoon, our guest on today's episode uh, check him out at eddiewoodgrow.net that's eddiewoodgrow all one word dot net uh, we'd also like to thank our good friends at Paradigm Athlete, uh, Paradigm Sport Athlete Training Center in beautiful Santa Cruz, California. Uh, this is uh, Joey Wolf's uh, business. He was recently on the podcast telling us how to get and stay fit. Check out ParadigmSport.com. Uh, the number one Amazon bestseller, Niche Down, How to Become Legendary by Being Different by Heather Clancy and myself. 
Check out uh, Niche Down on Amazon today. The incredible nonprofit uh, started by my dear friend, the, inc- uh, the incredible, the incomparable, the handsome, the talented Tim Rode. Check out onelifefullylived.org where we help you dream, plan, and live your best life. Now, are you an entrepreneur? Are you working in an entrepreneurial business? Then check out growwire.com. This is the new place for stories of innovation and growth on the internet for the entrepreneurial and innovative uh, of mind, so to speak. (laughs) Check out growwire.com. There's a podcast that I've been stoked to be on. There's a YouTube channel, and there's a lot of great articles up there. Now, um, are you somebody who recently went uh, solo, or maybe you have a solopreneur business or a small business, but you need some help? Why not get a, a virtual assistant and leverage the power of virtual assistants at bottleneck.online? That's bottleneck, all one word, dot online. They're my friends at Bottleneck Virtual Assistants. We'll take some pressure out, get some uh, good work done for you, and, and allow you to focus on what matters. Now, speaking of what matters, uh, when somebody Googles your company, what they see next often is your website. And so, yeah, look, I know it's, you know, 2019, but there's still a lot of people out there who don't realize that the website is the first thing that people see. It's the first impression. Our friends at Atranet will help you turn your website into your best spokesmodel. Check out atre.net today, particularly if you're in the B2B space. And another nonprofit we love, the Front Row Foundation. Check out frontrow.org. These folks help um, people who are suffering from potentially life-threatening diseases create moments that matter. Check out frontrowfoundation.org today. All right, I want to remind you that this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and we would love it if you shared the shit out of it. Make no mistake, your shares on social media uh, are the biggest way you can say thank you if for some reason you wanted to say thank you. <laughs> All rights do remain disturbed. We must remind you. We must remind you that this podcast is clearly produced in a studio that does contain nuts. Teach kids growth strategy. Remember to always shower with your friend. Don't be lame. Get out of the passing lane. The left lane is not a cruising lane here, people. Listen to Joan Jett. Uh, practice turning off your smartphone. Only buy pasture-raised, free-range eggs. Thank you so much, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this podcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Richard C. Kelly. Richard C. Kelly, chairman of Pacific Gas and Electric Company. Sorry, Dick. We just ran out of time for you. That's it. Thank you so much, my friends. It really means the world to me that you'd invest part of your life uh, with this podcast. Until next time, follow your difference.